I think one of the greatest joys of opening up a wall for me is finding these clues to the past. You're listening to Our Shared Field, where we bring artists into conversation with people from outside of the arts. I'm your host, Austin Camille, and welcome to the third conversation of the season. Last week, we spoke with South Philadelphia carpenter and contractor Marielle Herring. Today, we meet site-responsive artist Sonia Blasovsky, whose work is focused in equal parts on fine craftsmanship and demolition. Sonia and I talked about how she views her work as a collaboration between herself and a building, why she's drawn to materials like plaster, and how she's thinking through the complicated history of classical architecture. My name is Sonia Blasovsky, and I am a Brooklyn-based artist. I'm an installation artist, and generally um, my work is about looking at history and really looking to uncover that which is overlooked and bring it into the present. And I'm doing that uh, often by making these kind of literal excavations uh, on site. So I have done a lot of cutting directly into sheetrock gallery walls to expose the literal history that is behind them. And I'm, I'm often doing that also with sculptural works that uh, utilize the space uh, or are derived from the space. So I'm gathering demolition material from a place or scraping paint off of walls and then repurposing it into the installations. So, um, the you know, the work is um, fairly labor-intensive and typically a gallery or institution can only let me be on site for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. So I end up spending, you know, uh, a full seven days, kind of day and night, working on site to respond to that place. When I first encountered Sonia's work, I was struck by the way it felt like she'd elegantly been able to gut a building in order to show us its history. She exposes the inside of walls and columns and uses materials found in these buildings and neighborhoods to create minimal compositions that feel like they're extensions of the architecture. We talked about what she does in between the times she's allowed to take apart other people's buildings and how she's kept her work and practice moving and evolving, especially over the last year. My work for many years has been a really kind of inconsistent practice. Mm -hmm. So everything for a couple of months will lead up to making work on site. I might make some parts or do planning. I I, I do a whole lot of research prior to uh, arriving at a location, but... um, you know, uh, I, I consider myself a studio artist, but the reality of what that has looked like for many years is that I will spend months of not actually making anything, but just testing and <clears throat> testing materials and being engaged in the local news that relates to um you know, the, the history of the places around me. I've had periods 
of being a little less directed mm. when I don't have a site to work with. The minute someone sure. approaches me to make a piece somewhere, I just get so invigorated to, you know, draw the site and take photographs of it and poke around the neighborhood and speak to the old superintendent, <laughs> you know, speak to the neighbors. I do a lot of combing through photographic archives. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious to know, so when, when you go about um, opening up a gallery space, opening up a building, opening up a wall, do you often know what it is that you're looking for? Is, it, is, hmm. is that action exploratory? Is it investigative? So before I go cutting into a wall, there is usually some sort of uh, concept uh, imagined or or real that I'm after. Mm. So, for example, the last solo show I had, uh, the excavation was very purposeful mm. and researched. So, so the the space that I was working in had originally been a space between buildings, but it was also the Jewish gravestone headstone business. The gallery, they have a backyard, and in that backyard were these bricked over windows. And my question was, do these windows continue into the space behind the sheetrock walls? Mm. So I was looking at old photos and trying to figure out what was behind the walls. So what I did was hope that <laughs> I, so I made a series of cuts in the walls that were equally spaced to these two bricked over windows. And it turns out that when I opened up the wall, there was one window and it wasn't in the right place. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it, it was not where I thought it was going to be based on the measurements I had taken mm -hmm. based on these two other windows. So the building had this kind of inconsistency. And so um, that's sort of a long way to say that, uh, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's an educated guess. Mm -hmm. And, and then I, you know, and I find what I find and, and typically I will respond to what I find there. So, um, for example, I opened up a bit of the wall at that gallery in Chelsea, and what I found beneath the wall was the contractor's snap chalk line, as well as a scrawled floor plan huh. um, written directly on the wall. And so I responded to that by sort of extending that snap chalk line on the existing walls in the mm -hmm. space to sort of relate to what was behind the wall. I think one of the the greatest joys of opening up a wall for me is fi is finding these kind of clues to the past and mm -hmm. and and generally what I find is I find the very ad hoc messy work of a contractor. Yes. <laughs> so, which is surprising because I think of people in construction as being maybe a, a little bit more sort of planned out than I am when I mm -hmm. approach an artwork or a space. It turns out they're winging it just as much yes. as I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. As someone in the construction contracting business, <laughs> it's yeah, so it's true. Like, so well, much of just, it is winging it. Yeah. Like, oh, this isn't flush. We'll just, you know, throw a few shims in there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. I'll open up a wall and I'll find a, you know, a side of a column that's entirely shimmed up. Or <laughs> So I often play with what I find. 
but I also, um, sometimes it's just gold and it's too good for me to really, you know, I just, I just expose it and I, and I leave it. Because Sonia uses the term site responsive in regards to her work so often, I wanted to clarify what exactly that meant for her. Artists use words like site-specific, site-integrated, in-situ, installation art, and the lines can feel a bit fuzzy at times. My work is, is made literally in response to mm-hmm. the place. So I'm not just bringing things that sort of, you know, change uh, dimension slightly because of the size of the ceiling or the angle of the corner of the room. I am really responding to what I find there, what what the history of that place is. And I feel like my work is so much a collaboration. So mm. it's um, it's not only, you know, a collaboration with a gallery director or a curator or, you know, the uh, preparators or art handlers on site, but it's it's also very much a collaboration with me and and the space mm-hmm. um, as a sort of a call and response. For me, I really feel like I, I'm I'm working with history. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I've been sort of framing my work recently is thinking about the making as this kind of physical act of memory. Recently, plaster as a material has become really important to Sonia. She's been working on plaster pieces that mimic architectural ornament, like ceiling medallions and crown molding. But she's been building her own molding tools to do so. You've described the material itself as indicative of memory, right? Mm-hmm. And that the material can actually hold, like physically hold the memory of the process of its making. Um, and then you also say that the material is indicative of repair. Um, yes. And so I'm, yeah, I'm curious to hear you talk about this linkage between history and memory and repair as concepts or processes. Sure, sure. So what I'm working with right now is I'm making works that are using an historic plaster working technique. Mm-hmm. So plaster is a building material. It's been used in, um, you know, construction and ornamentation mm-hmm. <clears throat> for hundreds of years. The method of making with it takes a particular touch. So material. So plaster as a material is is interesting because. In between it being liquid and solid, it goes through a number of states. And to create a plaster form that will hold up on the wall or even form itself on the bench or on the table, the plaster goes through what we call the putty state, mm. uh, where the where the plaster wants to sort of start to stand up on its own. It behaves a bit like putty. It's still malleable, but it's not solid yet. And there's a the moment where dragging the tool along the plaster, um, you know, the craftsperson, in this case, me, mm-hmm. <laughs> has to know um, how many drags across the plaster uh, the, the plaster can handle because too many drags will pull the plaster away from the form rather than forming the shape in the plaster. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a physical dance with the material mm-hmm. that the craftsperson has to be 
aware of and in control of. And first of all, it's been a a wonderful process to teach myself, but it, it also feels like a, a physical act of, of, of maintenance. And in that mm-hmm. way, I'm thinking of the process and the material as this metaphor or this stand-in for, um, you know, a, a physical act of, of memory in the present. The, the process is really, it's simply for restoration. Mm-hmm. And that's why, and that is where I'm thinking about repair, is that really this is only used for repair. And on a grander scale, uh, I'm thinking about plaster being used in colonial architecture and ornamentation, and really thinking about the need to rewrite the stories of the United States colonial past and rework them, um, you know, so that they are, first of all, truthful, Mm -hmm. and second of all, relevant to us. I often ask myself about how relevant history is. Mm. You know, with the events of the last year, the energy that's been catalyzed by, by the killing of George Floyd, and now this insurrectionist around the almost former president, it feels to me like the past is more present than ever. Mm. And, and so I think that is, is just a, maybe not a huge shift in my own work, but a shift in, in my thinking um, that, that the work I'm, I'm making feels uh, relevant because I'm, I'm even more invested in, in questioning the history of this country you know, um, Christian Boltanski, I can never find this quote when I'm looking for it, but <laughs> Christian Boltanski has this lovely quote about how he thinks that a memorial should be made of something like paper mm-hmm. that has to be tended to constantly. Um, I feel like there are many different directions I want to <laughs> go with, uh, yeah, with my yeah. thoughts on all of that. Uh, so first and foremost, what that's bringing up for me is in our first conversation that we'd had, um, you talked a little bit about your body in the mm-hmm. process of making your mm-hmm. work. I look at your work and I can't help thinking about the, the physical actions that actually make these pieces possible. So, you know, the cutting and the unfolding, the repetitive motions. Um, can you talk about your, your thoughts on your body's relationship to, the, to these spaces that you're um, inhabiting? I think I, I spent many years doing the feminist thing of acting like a man when it came to. <laughs> yes. Oh you my know, gosh, like, I totally uh, understand. <laughs> you know, when it comes to sort of physical mm. labor, Mm-hmm. You know, or say in in my case, picking up plywood from the hardware store. <laughs> you know, yes, yes. Oh my and, gosh, you were speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> and in that way, it's this kind of pretending you don't have a body, mm. and that is really it's disempowering. Mm. It's dishonest with myself. As the years have worn on, there are a number of things that make me consider my body and and also um, really reflect on how I've used my body in the work and as part of the work. So mm-hmm. first off, you know, I teach college students and I teach them how to use shop equipment. So I'm 
maybe, you know, teaching them how to cut wood on the bandsaw or metal on the bandsaw. I'm teaching them how to use the chop saw. And all of these things are these physical actions that demand a particular posture. Mm. That's one way in which I become very aware of my body. Also, teaching is really performative. So um, there's there's a part of that where, you know, I think a lot about how I'm performing the use of my body appropriately. Mm-hmm. And then in the work, um, you know, the work has always been very much related to my body. I, I, I think it's been less visible in the past. So for example, you know, I might have a piece of an installation hanging across uh, the a gallery And if you're exactly my size, you will be able to walk beneath it. And if you are any taller than me, you'll have to duck. So in that way, I've always kind of incorporated my body into the work. I've been making these um, large plaster arches in situ on the wall with this historic plaster working technique I spoke about. And really the size of the arch is partly related to architecture, Mm -hmm. but it's also related to the physical span of my own arm, how I can reach to make the work. Mm -hmm. Um, And that makes me also think about our body's relation to architecture. Since I'm looking at the built environment, I'm really, you know, um, you know, always aware of how wide the window is. And I think, you know, in some ways, working with kind of you know, construction and architectural ornamentation materials is a way for me to understand my relationship to the the built environment. And then I think that you and I had talked about when I'm working more recently with plaster that um, my physical actions are very much in tune to the material and what the ma- the needs of the material are at each moment. So there's mm-hmm. this moment where plaster is just super liquid and it's splashing all over and it's kind of, you know, n- no big deal. You know, it gets splashed around and you can move freely. And then there's a, a mo- another moment where the plaster starts to set up and I find my- myself, you know, moving very quickly mm-hmm. to make sure that I'm getting enough plaster on the wall before I, I drag the tool across it. And so the, so the material is actually dictating the, the physical action in a, in a, in a funny way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting hearing all of that because to my mind in construction and carpentry, it's kind of assumed that you're using all of these like really regimented practices. But mm. then when you're actually in the process of constructing the amount of times that you do use your body as measurement. Um, right. And you do let the material kind of dictate like how you have to respond in the moment is it's, I mean, it's the majority of the time. It's interesting talking about very similar processes, but in an art context where it's um, acceptable. Right. Right. Well, you know, what this makes me think of is a number of years ago, I was 
doing research for an unsolicited proposal. I was actually looking up an ancient Jewish ritual that involves leaving a portion of the home unbuilt or Mm. scraped away. When I was researching this ritual, it said that it should be a cubit by a cubit. And I and so I thought, what is a cubit? And I looked up cubit, and cubit is basically the length of your forearm. Huh, uh-huh. And I thought, wow, how beautiful that in ancient times, you know, the kind of construction practice was in relation to the body, mm-hmm. right? Oh, it's about the length of your forearm, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And then that is, um, I mean, that's something I, I think about as well is, um you know, the body in relation to our memories. Mm. So I recently last year made a piece where I was using this same plaster working technique and I was creating this picture frame molding on the wall. And the size and form of the picture frame molding was from memory of the first apartment I lived in when I moved to Brooklyn 15 huh. years ago. Uh-huh. And that apartment was gut renovated. It is. It does not exist any longer as it stood. But when I really later now consider that apartment, the size and form that I made that piece in, I think it must be much bigger than it really was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that our, you know, our memories can make things really outsized. I think that has something to do with our bodies mm-hmm. and how we relate to the built environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, your body's memory of a space, even if it's different from its actual reality, it doesn't make it any less real. Right. In approaching in approaching these spaces, these built environments as an artist, what is it that you believe that your art or perhaps art more generally um, can describe about a, a space that is different than um, what a historian could do or a preservationist? You know, it's interesting because I, I often think, you know, well, should I just be in architectural restoration? <laughs> uh-huh. and, and I think, um, and I think the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I imagine what the preservationist or restorationist needs to ask themselves is, you know, what is the story that mm. needs to get told here? I I hope what I am doing differently is a couple of things. I hope that I'm getting the viewer to slow down a mm. little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm asking them to notice things. And I think also I... I'm hoping what my work does is uncover something that's been overlooked, which whether or not that is the most relevant story at that moment, I hope it leads the viewer to question what else has been overlooked, Mm -hmm. right? What else can come into question? What else isn't set in stone? What else is behind the walls? Mm -hmm. I also think... My job as an artist, I am working to connect with people. And I mean, I, I personally am, am, am fairly extroverted and enjoy connecting with people in person, but, but connecting with people through the work is a, is, a different, is a different type of 
connecting for me, but it's still the same desire. It's still a calling out um, to say something that I, I hope is resonant with someone else. Right now, for me, it becomes a little bit complicated because the concept I'm, I'm working with, where I'm sort of looking at uh, colonial architecture and colonialist revival architecture and its mm. ornamentation, um, for me, brings up, you know, it's, it's really beautiful stuff. Mm-hmm. It's really classical and beautiful. And so I, I, I think by working with that imagery, you know, I'm, I'm challenging my own kind of Eurocentric notions of beauty right? Because I'm drawn to that. I do think it's beautiful. And then I'm, you know, I'm angered and disgusted that I think that's beautiful, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, you know, even that, um, and so the looking I think is, is complex right now, but I, but I think, uh, I think that might be the difference between what I'm trying to do, you know, and, and what just kind of preserving a building might do is really mm-hmm. thinking about, what is the story that's being told? And I, and I hope that I'm raising questions around it rather than answering any of them. To hear the conversation between Sonia and Marielle, join us next week on Our Shared Field. You know, I'm like the person who, when I get the Ikea dresser and it says definitely use two people, I'm like, I can do it myself. <laughs> We put so much time, energy, literally blood, sweat, and tears into the stuff that we do. I really do hope that people enjoy the product that results from that. You can learn more about the guests and follow their interactions on our website, chat.squarespace.com. Music for this episode is by Karen Smith, a Philadelphia percussionist and poet who often takes their drums on the road. To hear more of their work, you can go to our website. Again, that's chat.squarespace.com. Thank you to the Center for Humanities at Temple University for hosting this podcast, and to our technical director, Eric Carbonara, at Not A Sound Studio. This podcast is recorded in North Philadelphia, on the ancestral lands of the Lenny Lenape people whose presence and resilience in Pennsylvania continues to this day. Until next time, I'm Austin Camille. Thank you for listening to Our Shared Field.